the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. So now we're in a particular portion of Scripture and a topic that talks about God's mind on money. And when you think about that, you think, how in the world can that really fit into worship? Well, it really does fit a lot into worship, because if you really go through and you want to do this, you might find it very fascinating and probably very interesting that when you see the topics upon which the Lord spoke or addressed, whether he was teaching others or speaking it publicly, however he did that, the two topics you probably would think about would be he spoke on heaven and hell. But did you know that he actually spoke more about hell than he did about heaven? And that really kind of wakes me up a little bit because the Lord wants us to remember that there is an eternality of our life. And when we die, that eternally part of, eternal part of us will either be in heaven if we've trusted Christ as Savior and will be in a horrible place that we call hell forever and ever if we did not trust Christ by faith alone. And I said all that now to say this, but out of those two topics, heaven and hell, it has been said that Jesus spoke more about our resources or money than he did about those two topics combined together. So that would tell me that that too would be important. And what you might do is to do a study on the life of Christ. Now, he had other topics. I want you to know that, especially those that are new to the Word. But when he did speak on it, he spoke in parables, he spoke in principles, he spoke in front of groups, he spoke one-on-one. And often the topic of the resources that we have, our money and things like that, comes up. Now, when he does that, obviously he has it for a reason. It's not so that we would think and grow rich. It isn't so much that we would have a name it and claim it or a health and wealth kind of a message. It was to realize how important those uh, the money and the resources are in the economy of how we live our life. And ultimately, that's part of the tools we use to then bring glory to the Lord. So you came to a worship service. We're partnering with that worship service by preaching. We're also preaching the word on the topic of our resources. And the end game again is to use all of that to bring glory to the Lord. Are you ready to continue our study on God's mind on paper, on, on money? Are you ready for that? All right, then why don't you take out your notes and we're going to kind of go a little bit further in it. And I want to give a little bit of a review. There are people that are now plugging into our ministry that have been with us. So I'm going to kind of go over a brief review. But I had a Bible teacher in school. His name was Dr. Mark Cambron. And almost every class he would begin to us young students, freshmen and then sophomore, when he taught Bible doctrine, he said this. He was an old country boy from Tennessee. And he was led to the Lord by Billy Sunday, if you know that name at all. And he said this, he said, Students, you preach the word and you repeat yourself because the more mud you sling against the wall, the more that's going to stick. And of course, I thought, ooh, my mind's in mud and all that. And then he, with a twinkle in his eye, says, repetition is theological mucilage. And for those of you that have never heard of the word mucilage, what is that? Glue. And so the repetition of theology is glue. He's in a good place. 
because Paul spoke about, I put this in remembrance of you. Peter says, let me remind you. So even the apostles writing again and again to others said, constantly remind folks. So it's a little bit of a review, but I think you're going to like it because I repackaged it a little bit different. So it's not just leftovers. I want to talk about the biblical principles of money management. They're all out there for you so that you can park on them, think them through, and then teach them to your kids and to those that you're discipling. Number one, our resources really aren't our resources, but God's. Now, I thought I made that really clear to you. Last Sunday when I was preaching, I met a couple that uh, were my students years and years and years and years ago. He's pastoring a wonderful church here in, in, uh, in North Carolina. And his wife afterwards says, you know, you need to really remind your people that the money that we have doesn't really belong to us. It all belongs to the Lord. And I so much wanted to say, I've already been saying that, but just in case you haven't gotten it, I want you to know when you pull out your wallet and your credit card represents the money you have in the bank, and you pull out your checkbook and that represents the money you have in the bank, and you pull out your statements and that represents the money that you have invested in your investment companies, whatever, all of that has been provided to us by God. And now we take that as, a, again, a tool, a resource to take care of our basic needs as well as to reach out for others. All right, number two. We have been entrusted with money and material resources. God trusts us with that. And so when I'm entrusted with that, I really look at that as a high holy gift from the Lord that I need now to give an account for it. Number three, we should be intentional about God's plan for using or investing them, meaning the resources. You might want to circle the word intentional. So when you have it, it's not just money in, money out. It's when it comes in, we're very careful of what are we going to use uh, this money for? What particular reasons? Now, let me just back up for a moment. I will be sharing with you a lot of biblical intentions and intentionality for how that money is to be used. That's coming next week and a couple weeks after that. But I want to prepare you that we're heading in the direction of once it comes in, what's the intention of it? Ultimately and always, the glory of the Lord, but more specifically. And then it says using and investing. And that's kind of letting you know a little window on all of this, that if you do have money and God has prospered you enough that you not only have enough to take care of your basic needs of life and that you have enough to give on a regular basis for kingdom growth, that God may have given that to you to use it as a way to invest it so that you'll make more off the money that you have as long as you do it biblically. So investing is not necessarily wrong. There's a lot of caveats with that that we need to be very careful with it. But at the same time, investing doesn't mean that it's sinful. All right, number four. We will have to give an account of how we manage them. And that Ecclesiastes 12.14 really comes off the page and slaps me in the heart, so to speak, when I read it. And it says this, For God will bring every act to judgment. I kind of knew that. You know, the things that I do, the way I drive my car, the way I treat my wife, the way that I handle my responsibilities as your interim pastor, I have to give an account of that. But then it says, Everything which is hidden, whether is good or evil. So that means even the things that I think nobody else sees, they don't see how I spend my money. They don't see what I buy in private. You know, I'm away on vacation. I'm on a speaking tour somewhere, how I spend my money. But I want you to know the Lord sees it all. Now, it seems like we've been uh, reared in a Christian environment that always means that God is always looking at us and he sees everything that we've done wrong and we have to give an account of that and we're going to be judged. I also like to remind you of this, that he sees every good thing that you do too. The time that you gave money to someone that had a need and nobody else saw you do that. The time that you purchased a book or pamphlet or some material to share with someone that you're discipling. Nobody knew that except maybe the one that you're working with. I want you to know that God sees it all. And here's the tricky part. He doesn't just see what you do. He doesn't just see what you do in secret. He saw it before you did it in your heart. 
And so it's a heart thing. It's always a heart thing. It always proceeds from the inside out. Well, let's go a little bit further. Number five, we will be rewarded or suffer loss based on our faithfulness or lack thereof. There is a reward for us, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ in Scripture is not a place where we're judged to determine whether or not we go to heaven or not. This is where we're uh, judged or rewarded for the things that we've done well in our life and that God honors that as well. So there is a reward or we could suffer loss if we've taken what God has given to us and we've done nothing but buy trinkets and bling and, and baubles and not used it for God's glory. We will have to give an account because what he's given to us is to be used to bring glory to him, to take care of the basic needs of our life, and then to reach out to others for kingdom work. All right, number six, our pursuit of material riches is not a valid goal in and of itself. So yes, we talked about ambition, that we need to have the desire, a work ethic, we need to be there, we need to be compensated properly. It's not wrong to check to see if you are properly compensated. There are caveats and biblical principles, governors on all of that, that we have the right ambition. But just to get rich to get rich so that we can just enjoy our life more, well, now we're on a slippery slope. Let me read to you a passage of Scripture again from Ecclesiastes. The writer there, which we believe was Solomon, says this, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I, I want to pause for a moment. When I read that, it kind of, we go over it so quickly, we hardly ever read Ecclesiastes anyway, but when we do read it, whatever my eyes saw, I kept not from them, as one translation says. Can you imagine if you went to the mall and you had so much money and anything that you wanted, everything you saw, you could just, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. I think of some of us who uh, appreciate the, the, the need and the value and the practicality of technology. We'd go nuts in an Apple store or maybe a Microsoft store or something because we just want everything. Well, that's what he would do. He would go anywhere that he wanted. He kept not his eyes from getting those things that he had for himself. So material riches were very much of a danger to him. He said, I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Can you imagine how he must have just exploded with sensuality? For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. So what he's really saying now is, I worked hard, I have money, so whatever I wanted to buy, I would buy. Anything that I want to have pleasure with, I had pleasure with. All right, let's go a little bit further. He goes on to say, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So after he didn't keep anything from his eyes, whatever he wanted to bring him pleasure, he knew he worked very hard, so he justified it all getting it. But at the end of the day, he had an empty, fruitless, vain life. It was like chasing the wind and not being able to capture it. So at the end, it was, it was gone. So I look at this, and I use this as a biblical principle for me to be very careful in how I pursue money or riches, because there's always a danger in it. Number seven, God has two objectives for where we invest our God-given resources. Now, when I give you these in this passage, there's two of them. Now, we will unpack that when we talk about giving our money, and I really have a lot to say about that. But for right now, I wanted you to see it in a summary fashion. So we're to give number one to family. And obviously, you're going to take care of your immediate family. We've got to take care of them first. And one of the verses that's often used is, but if any man does not provide for his own, and especially for his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Basically, it's just saying he's like an unbeliever. He's really not taking care of the responsibility that he has. There's a lack of trust in God, and so he now takes care of himself. And then others. So you could circle family and others. It says, so then, while we have opportunity... Let us do good for others, all others, all other people, but especially unto those who are of the household of faith. 
So again, what I have is to hopefully add value to uh, other people that have immediate needs, and then perhaps for the next generation that'll be following me, maybe in an inheritance or something. Number eight, giving is far more about faith than about finances, and far, far more about belief than about bucks. And I gave you Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. You know, when I look at that, there have been times in Carol's in my life that there was a real need out there. And I'm wondering sometimes if uh, when the Lord presents a need to us and we have this strong prompting from the Lord, there's no other hidden motive. There's not, we want the people to like us. We want to get something out of this. It's just, there's a need and we just, just want to give. That when we give a little bit beyond our basic needs of life, then we are put in a position where we have to desperately then trust the Lord to make up for that which we have given to someone else. And so what that does, it actually strengthens our faith from within, as now we have to even more so depend upon God to take care of our needs. And God always comes through if that prompting was coming from Him as leading according to a biblical principle that we gave away to the other person. So some of you right now may be at a um, learning um, how to be without stage as Paul talks about in Philippians. I, I just want to commend you right now, if you are without. For some of you, you're without because you made wrong choices. We've all have. I'm, I've done that too. And so now we're in that little kind of no man's land of discipline and uncertainty about our life. I don't want you to give up hope. I don't want you to beat up on yourself. I want you to own it, grieve it, if you've done wrong, but then leave it. And then use that time to say, all right, Lord, it's not about the bucks now. It's about the biblical principle of how I use my money. And so I'm going to trust you that that lesson is being not wasted on me. And that as I move forward, whatever I did wrong and however I scattered this improperly, then Lord, I'm asking you to make up the difference in my life. I am trusting you. So money as it comes in or even goes out, it continually is a faith principle. Because here's the phrase, it is impossible to please God without faith. And so if we're just willy-nilly giving our money away and faith isn't involved, I'm wondering if there's something that could be lacking. And so it wants to stretch our faith with the Lord. So those are just general principles about our money. Well, let's go back over some more material, and then we're going to get ahead. And I want to give you a quote that I picked up from John MacArthur. I appreciate a lot of John MacArthur's teaching. There are certain aspects about his teaching that I cannot agree with. And uh, he and I have had conversations about it, oddly enough. And uh, that didn't budge him at all, but uh, that does mean that uh, we've had those conversations, especially on the issue of lordship salvation and that, those type of issues. On the other hand, I will not throw away any, everybody just because I don't agree in one particular point. If they've got something good and it's biblical, I want to share it. And here's what he said out of his commentary in Matthew chapter 1 or, and through chapter 7 on page 425. Listen very carefully. It really spoke to me. What he's doing right now in this quote, because we're talking about our money, is a biblical worldview of money and a Christian worldview of money and how those two worldviews are opposite from one another and when you try to bring them together, they actually crash against one another. And I want you to listen to that because often the way we use our money is motivated by a value system of a worldview that we picked up. If it's a secular worldview and that comes into it, we're going to use our money that way according to a secular principle or a secular worldview. Those of you that have been immersing yourself in Scripture and a heart that's turned toward the Lord, you're more filled with a biblical or a Christian worldview. Now, we still have the choice whether or not we're going to follow it and do it, but if we choose to do that, there's a whole new way we look at our money. Now, how do I know that that can cause you inner and outer conflict? All you have to do is to live within an extended family that has a 
tremendous secular worldview and what they do with their money, and you have a Christian worldview of how you're going to use God's money, you're going to find that you'll have many conversations, and some of them can degenerate into a heated conversation. And really, it's not that you and them have such a difference. It's because there's an unseen world battle that's going on. You're just the two humans that got sucked into this thing, into a war. If you understand what I'm saying, can you say amen? All right. So with that, let me read to you John MacArthur's quote. It's not long, but it is profound. He says, Those who have no hope in God naturally will put their hope and expectations in things they can enjoy now. Basically, he's saying those have no hope in God, so they really don't think much about an afterlife or deny an afterlife or really don't care about the afterlife, just want to put it out of their mind, that afterlife. So everything is about how can I make a little bit of heaven on earth right now? How can I ease whatever pressures and how can I bring in some kind of a, a joy or excitement or whatever in my life? And they know that some way there's a path to that and money and resources are a major part of that, those that have no hope in God. They have nothing to live for but for the present, and their materialism is perfectly consistent with their religion because they have no hope. It's all in themselves, and it's all about how much they can enjoy right now. So that's their religion, and that's the best they can have for this world. They have no future hope. Then he says they have no God to supply their physical or their spiritual needs. Remember, they're lost, their present or even eternal needs. So anything they get, they must get for themselves. So that's why inside their their chest beats a heart that is horribly selfish. And I certainly don't want to mimic the world's view. And I know that we all have a propensity for that because we do have a deceitful heart. But as long as I have yielded that deceitful heart to a very non-deceitful God, then my heart now begins to be controlled and I enjoy what we're going to hear about in just a moment as a result of being financially free, what God gives to us. The end of the quote says this, they are ignorant of God's supply and have no claim on it. And so now, instead of me sitting out here and I look at this and I say, boo, 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 secular worldview, I I have that. There's a condemnation of that. He says that. Those that follow that, they're going to reap the result of the the fruit of that level of uh, sowing that they'll do with it. But listen very carefully. My job is not to condemn the world like Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. My job is to come alongside them, realize that that secular worldview is not biblical and is very dangerous, but I need to come alongside them and help them to know God. And so, yes, I might give them some biblical principles about money. Yeah, I get that. But they'll never fully understand this until they've accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior by placing their faith alone in Christ. But everything still comes back to us with all this money stuff. When we come to the loss, we can give them some practical principles of money management. That's all good. The word, word of God is good. It'll work. But at the same time, we have to realize that we may be throwing sand against the wind if they have not accepted Christ as our Savior. And our whole purpose is to love them, not to drive them away because they have that view. doesn't mean we have to embrace it. We don't have to look like a duck and talk like a duck to reach a duck. Take that to the bank. All right, let's go on. I want to give you three benefits now that we will have if we have chosen to be financially free. Now, as I give you these, let me pause for a moment and explain where I'm going with this. You'll hear a lot of seminars. Some of them are even, a, a, I'm going to call them biblical or Christian, but watch out because they will talk about becoming financially free. They'll talk about get out of debt, get out of debt, get out of debt. And that's, I think, the first step in a walk with God. 
the first step in the financial part of walking with God is the get out of debt. But I don't believe that, that that's a walk with God. That's just the first step. My first step is I got to do what I need to do to get out of debt. But my second step now begins the walk. Here it is. You stay out of debt. Because a lot of times there are Christians that finally get so broken, they go to these seminars and they say, I'm going to get out of debt. They do everything they can to get out of debt. And a year later, they have slid back into debt again. It's like God wants us to uh, be peacemakers, right? But I also believe he wants us to be a peacekeeper too. So once you make it, you need to keep it. So the walk is a series of things to do to stay within God's perfect plan for our life, which is biblical. So now, when I give this, this is how do you become financially free? But I'd like to also say the benefit of it is if you stay financially free. These are three. They're very simple right now. There's probably a thousand different things that you get when you're financially free. But if I could reduce it to these three, these three ought to be enough to motivate us to want to be financially free and stay financially free. All right, number one, we will have peace, mostly inner but also outer peace. Those of you that have been in a time when you have really been under the gun financially, especially those that are the head of households, the ones that really carry the weight of the responsibility of taking care of the family, when you know that you just don't have enough money and you don't have a job or you're struggling with all of this, you wake up at night, I mean, you go to sleep because you're so depressed, and you finally get to sleep, but then a few hours later, once you get that buzz off, you're awake again, and then your mind is like, what are we going to do, and how can I do this? And you're plotting and planning and praying, trying to get it all together. You know what it's like when you don't have peace. There are some of you now that are facing retirement, and you know that you, you probably cannot continue working when you're 80 like you are. You know you're probably going to have to back off at 70 or so, and yet you're wondering, can I really make it, especially when I'm carrying this boatload of debt over here? And um, again, uh, I would like to say just grieve it and leave it. Learn it, apply this stuff, move forward and trust God and watch God do some magnanimous things in your life. But you can have that inner peace. But then I also believe there's an element of outer peace as well. Because if we don't have the inner peace, it seems like then um, our thought patterns are off. Our thought patterns are off. That means our conversation is off. If our thought patterns and conversations are out, because what's in our heart will come out of all of that junk, I'm sure that we're saying and doing things that will negatively affect others. And when that happens, then we don't have outer peace in our relationships. Did you all catch that? Did I speak too slowly for you on that? And so again, it goes into our inner heart. If we really have peace with God, there's a settleness, there's a contentment. And now when we have that, then we don't, we don't get into these tit-for-tat kind of conversations with others. And we get worried and we say the wrong things and we have the wrong tone, timing, technique in our conversations. We don't have destroyed relationships. And then you don't have, ultimately, you ready for this? Bill collectors calling. That ought to ruin your day. All right, let's go to number two. The ability to... No, we can provide properly for our family now, and I added in the future. When we are financially free and we stay financially free, we know that we can provide properly for our family now and in the future. Now, we're not unpacking what it means to properly, because some of you think properly is you have to buy your kid a car, or your kid thinks you've got to buy him a car, <laughs> more likely. But there's a properness of taking care of them, and I keep using the term basic needs of life. And probably I should explain that. When I go back to Matthew chapter 6, it talks about seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. It's actually set more in the context of don't worry, have no worries, God takes care of the birds, all of that stuff, and I get it. But they didn't have to worry, they didn't have to toil and spin as long as we have basically food and raiment. The word is covering. 
And so I believe that our basic needs of life is that we have food that will sustain our bodies internally when we eat and clothing to keep us um, modest and warm when we need to be, appropriate. And I might extend this. Now, I don't think the Greek does, but I think in a certain way the Lord uh, might permit me to say this. I think if we use the the dynamic of covering, we could also say a place to sleep, a a home, a roof over your head, a covering. So you've got the food on the inside, you've got the clothing on the outside, and perhaps something over your head of some kind of roof. And that would be your basic need of life. Now, it doesn't mean you have to have one of those beautiful mansions that I call a popcorn palace. You ever see those? All right, I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about something that would be, as we would say in Hawaii, it's a sense of place, a place where you see, where you feel two things, safe and secure. All right. Now, let's leave that and go to number three. And that is another benefit is that we can more adequately give for the furtherance of the kingdom or the gospel so that God has given us not only to take care of our needs, it's not a center thing, it's also for others. Let me go off on a sidebar. If I was an attorney, I'd say I need to say this in a sidebar. Or parentheses. Do you mind? Give, give me a moment to say this. I've been meditating on something that I've carried for a long time, for probably two decades now. And that's the phrase, you know, what are we here for? What are we here for? Uh, I, I liked it so well, I, I took it and I said, um, what are you doing for heaven's sake? You know, if you're over heaven's sake, what are you doing for heaven's sake? I liked it so well, I got a little piece of paper and I did the best graphics I could. And then I gave it to my wife to decoupage on a scrap paper box. So I'd have all my paper with the scrap papers in I'd read, what are you doing for heaven's sake? You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.